I'm Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas sits down with the Reverend Travis Norville, a pastor in Minneapolis whose church is located just blocks from George Floyd Square. They discuss how the church can be present in the holy space of similar places around the country and what ministry looks like as we emerge from a pandemic. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Travis Norville. Reverend Travis Norville is pastor of Judson Memorial Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is a contributing writer at The Christian Citizen and an avid cyclist who blogs at peddlingpastor.com. We're happy to have him with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Curtis. Glad to be here. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your congregation and ministry at Judson Memorial. Yeah, well, you know, like most places, you know, the, the the congregation I have right now is not the same congregation I had 15, 16 months ago. So uh, before then, I could say we were primarily a neighborhood church uh, in South Minneapolis. Uh, we had about 75 percent of the congregation could was in a was in a 15 to 20 minute bike ride. Uh, they wouldn't describe themselves that way, but that's, that's my you know classification. Um, since then, you know, things changed. Uh the congregation grew. Uh, we don't know exactly how big we are right now. Uh, we think we're around 200. We were probably around 125, something like that. Um, and that means we have members, you know, a lot of members, old members that moved away, have rejoined. And uh, just we're finding some newer people from the community out of the experiences that we had from the uh, past you know, 16 months. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm anxious to see exactly who this new congregation is. Yeah. So you recently returned to in-person worship in your building. Uh, what was that like for you, and how has your congregation responded to returning? Yeah, well, we had planned it. This, it was just the previous Sunday, June uh, June thirteenth. We didn't know uh, we were going to have an outside service, uh, but we had a stipulation that if the weather was too bad, we would move it indoors. But never in Minnesota did we think that we'd have to move it indoors because it was so hot and humid. So, uh, so we moved it indoors. We had, we had a few days to publicize it. We thought maybe, you know, 10 people may come just because of all this stuff. But, we, you know, we had about 50 people there that showed up. It was overwhelming. You know, uh, people were clapping. Uh, they were just glad to see each other. Um, it, was, it had a, a totally different feel. I can't really explain it. You know, it's just a different energy, a uh, different level. We, we changed everything. We didn't have a bulletin this time. And uh, some people were just, you know, they didn't know what was going on. And we found that it made people really attentive to the service. They had to be really pay attention to every move we made. So you could feel that energy in you. Um, it was great. And as soon as I came home, I went straight to bed uh, and woke up, you know, kind of mid-afternoon. And uh, so then, and then we kind of debriefed yesterday and we realized all the things that we did, we probably, you know, we did wrong, but we really relished in all the things that happened that did went well. So. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how life goes on. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So in the in the past uh, 13 months in the city of Minneapolis has lived through the 
trauma of the murder of George Floyd, which uh, sparked protests there and, and around the world, um, as well as the trial and conviction of Derek Chauvin. What has it been like uh, for you to be uh, at the center of all of that and for your congregation to be there at the center of all that? You know, it's, it's been transformational, uh, to be honest with you. It's, uh, we're not, you know, a lot of it, a lot of us, a lot of the congregation being different. I think, you know, it, you can center it on the events that happened around the murder of George Floyd. Uh, the church is about a mile and a half from um, where he was killed at, at 30th in Chicago. Um, and, you know, we, we, we didn't have a choice but to be transformed by it. I mean, on one hand, the city erupted um, and people just responded. I mean, there were people from the church there at you know every protest, every march, every rally downtown they were at. Um, uh, there were people that had never been to a protest before, and uh, there was a, a woman from the congregation who uh, organized a how to protest, um, you know, kind of a little tutorial on just getting people. What do you do when you walk with all this group of people, and how do you what do you say, and how do you react? So I mean, it was just a you know, there were people that had never been involved in anything at all, you know, political, they would say, or any kind of event like this, who were out there on the streets uh, day in and day out. Um, and, you know, this goes back to, you know, I, when I was thinking about what was going on, when I was in New Orleans post-Katrina, and I got to see how churches responded to that crisis. And, and I saw that there were kind of two models that happened, either a church kind of gave itself away and, and rediscovered itself or a church kind of hunkered down and didn't really, you know, kept their resources to themselves. And, you know, George Floyd really, you know, as the pandemic was starting, it really forced the congregation to come to that crisis moment. And they responded by giving things away. So, you know, we started a, a we had an emergency fund that was just for members at the beginning. If people weren't into hardship and we turned it into a community fund and it went from 2000 to $50,000, you know, in just a couple of weeks and people gave money from the congregation. But then that was part of this new church. I mean, we had people from, I think, 15 different states that gave money. Um, and I, and most of these people, I have no idea who they are or how they even found out that we were doing this. Uh, and, and with those funds, we tried to reach out to every you know, nonprofit and activist organization that we could to uh, give this money away, uh, form new relationships, and really started putting ourselves out there in the community in ways that hadn't been before. So, you know, we're not the same church now, um, and I'm looking forward to this. I'm glad we're not the same church. Mm. Uh, I, I wish that these weren't the circumstances that caused this new life, but I'm glad that the church stepped up to that to the moment. In your latest Christian Citizen article, Practicing Resurrection, you write about that phrase, which comes from a poem by Wendell Berry. And you note that you have long loved the sound of that phrase. You've used it in sermons and in, in your own writing, but you never really understood what it meant until the past year. What does it mean to you now to say practicing resurrection? Yeah, I mean... Again, I mean, even when just to hear you, I mean, how can you not love that phrase? You know, we hear you say it back. Um, but but you, for the life of me, I just couldn't figure out. Uh, I mean, I can't go to George Floyd Square and resurrect George Floyd or Dante Wright or, you know, uh, um, all the names of, of the those who have been the victims of police violence and others. Um, but, you know, I, I, I tried to figure out, OK, well, what, what can I do in this moment? Uh, and what does it mean to, to proclaim life where there's so much death and violence? 
Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I talked about an article, you know, this, this idea came to me from Christopher Stendhal was he asked it rhetorically. Um, he was asking, can you heal like Jesus? And the entire crowd just went completely silent. And we all just kind of looked at ourselves and he responded back, you know, I can't either, but you know, let's do all we can to, um, make a national healthcare system so we can take this ministry of Jesus and uh, apply it on a national scale. So when I was sitting there uh, all these times at George Floyd Square, one day I was just like, well, why can't we do the same thing in this response? So why can't our practice of resurrection, if we're going to proclaim life, mean that we proclaim life for all of our neighbors and for all our kids? And this means a, a much fairer housing system, a much fairer education um, much fairer system all over. And so it, it places you in the nexus of faith and culture and politics. And um, I, I would say if, if resurrection doesn't have a place at George Floyd Square, then you know we ought to just pack up our bags and go home. So um, that's what it means right now. And we're, we're still figuring that out. I mean, we still have all kinds of policy proposals that the city is in the midst of. And, you know, we, we're working with different groups and trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean? We've had meetings with the police department, uh, with the local inspectors to try to ask them their perspectives. We've talked to other, you know, law enforcement, law enforcement and first responders. Um, and, you know, then we have to reach out to nonprofit and activist organizations and see what they're doing. Um, from, for me, the, the practice means, okay, one thing we found during the pandemic was we may be a small church in the grand scheme of things, but we have a lot of access to power and privilege. And, it, and it's time that we really start using this for the common good rather than, than our own good. You mentioned uh, George, George Floyd Square. Um, that's just a few miles from where you you live. You visit weekly now. Uh, describe that space um, for us and what it is like to visit on a regular basis. Yeah, it, it, is, it is described as a semi-autonomous zone. Um, and that means the, there's about a four um, block square that is that is prohibited. Traffic is prohibited from entering. Uh, at every stop, there is a there's kind of monitors at the gate. There are community members that uh, monitor that. So uh, if you're on a bike, they ask you to dismount and walk. Uh, I mean, it does make their cars can go in and out. People that uh, live there, they do have a ways to get in and out. Uh, it is, is, is unlike any other four-way intersection you've ever been in. So the, the middle of the intersection has been turned into a memorial with a giant fist sculpture that you may have seen. And uh, around it are community gardens. There's a there's a the gentleman who just volunteers his time as a gardener, and he has turned all this into garden. There um, there's a community library. Uh, for a time, there was a community medic, so uh, EMT officials had a hard time getting into the into the square. So people that were nurses and doctors just volunteered their time and set up a a doctor uh, kind of a medical tent. There have been at times. Um, uh, clothing swaps. There have been um, not just with the community gardens, but also um, just community uh, food drives and all that stuff would be available. Uh, now there are merchants. There's people selling Black Lives Matter um, materials and flags and T-shirts. There are people that are selling candles. Uh, and this one makes me feel like it is almost like a medieval shrine you're seeing develop in real time. So the people can light candles as they pay their respects and mourn. Um, on the street itself, the 
on the pavement have been tremendous artwork, uh, marking spots. Uh, there's a list of names of all the, uh, the and the, unfortunately the list continues to grow of those who have been victims of police violence. Just a, a little ways away from the squares, it's still part of the area. There is a, there's, it's not a park. It was kind of a swell in the ground that the city was really using as um, for water um, uh, runoff, but it, it Luckily, it's been so dry here for the past year, we haven't had that problem. So that has turned into a makeshift uh, memorial with these headstones of victims of police violence. Um, and, you know, I was because I'm there all the time, you kind of get to know a little bit of the people and hear about them. And so one day I was just there and there were these two what I would call kids. I mean, they looked like maybe they were 18 or 19 years old. And they were the ones who were in charge of these tombstones. And, you know, this was right when the pandemic and everything had shut down. And somehow, I don't know where they were from. I didn't hear that part. But they just got in their car or they found a flight. I couldn't remember. They got to Minneapolis and said, we've got to do something. They went to Home Depot and bought all of the corrugated plastic they could find and made this tombstone park. I mean, no one asked them to do it or gave them permission. They just did it. And now it's turned into this uh, park that's now. Uh, there's artwork everywhere. Um, it doesn't mean that it's completely safe. I mean, there have been several, uh, you know, there have been shootings there. Uh, you do kind of have to watch yourself at times, but not most of the time. Um, and most of the time when I go there, you feel like you walk into a different world. And this little semi-autonomous zone really is a different space. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of places in the world where you can share space where people are either screaming out loud at morning or they are dancing uh, just to relieve some stress. You can hear a sermon uh, pretty much anytime you're there uh, by somebody on the corner. Uh, you know, you're just sharing people, you're sharing space with a wide variety of people uh, from all different races and classes. And it's just an amazing, uh, it can be a pretty amazing experience. Sometimes it's really loud. Sometimes it's, you know, you can hear a pin drop, just the silence of people mourning. So I'm sure you've uh, spoken with many people in that space over the past year. Um, is there one encounter or conversation that really sticks out for you? Oh, you know, I mean, uh, there, this is maybe a collective uh, person. We'll say that um, I can't get over the number of people that um, that have just jumped in their car and just made their way here. You know, mm. people from all over the world. Um, I've talked with, I don't know how many people from Europe or, or this one in particular, she's this woman from Chicago that just said, you know, I heard about this and my sister and I got in a car and here we are. Um, you know, uh, and that was pretty amazing. The, the one person that I really think about is Terry Willis, who was this young man from Anniston, Alabama, that said he was just going to walk uh, to from his house to Minneapolis. And he did. And he walked, a, you know thousand miles i've driven that wow. it's, it's a long drive i can't imagine right and, and and he came by um he made his final path it went right past our house and i knew he was coming that day but i didn't know that i didn't hear the route it wasn't announced in advance uh and so i was doing the dishes and the kids are like hey dad do you know that there's there's helicopters over our house and i was like it's terry willis quick everybody on your bikes and uh we got on our bikes and we went down and um you know, this guy said he'd walked so much. Uh, he was kind of emaciated. He was just a very thin man. He had the look of a saint about him. Um, and he walked around everybody. Uh, he kind of, he got out of his van and he just started walking around people and he started blessing people. Uh, and he was, he 
you know, you put, you put your hand on him, just say, I love you. Uh, and he was crying and everyone else was crying. And then he got to George Floyd Square and he took his shoes off and he left them uh, where George Floyd was murdered. He knelt down. He said a prayer. Uh, you know, I, I think of people, you know, people like Terry and the, and the woman from Chicago or just you hear those stories and you think, man, you just it just for me, it's just if you start to get a little bit uh you know, downcast or you start to think you start to get a little numb to the situation. You hear this kind of story and you meet this kind of person. You think, man, I, I just got to, I don't care what I feel like. I got to get back out and do what I can. As you look back on ministry since the outset of the pandemic, what is one thing you will carry forward into the future? And what is one thing you hope to do differently? Oh, oh. I mean, the one there's a, there's an image I have, uh, you know, when the city was burning, the prevailing winds go uh, north to south. And so we're south of where it was. So every morning there were these chunks of debris in our yard and just picking one up, you know, and just holding it. And the kids are like, what is this? I'm like, we don't know. And you think about that. It was it could have been a number of things. It could have been just just the buildings burning. But then you think of the bodies that burned. Um the ashes that are that are everywhere. So we hold we, we kind of held these ashes as holy stuff that you know we have lives to protect and we have um, you know a city to to protect to make sure that this kind of uh, anger and disruption doesn't happen again. I mean it was righteous anger and I and I um, understand it uh, somewhat, uh, but hopefully that that kind of that image that we hold together to make sure this doesn't happen again. You know and, and going forward. Um, you know, I mean, the honesty that that you can feel at George Floyd Square. I hope that we are that honest uh, with each other going forward as a, as a church and as a community that if we need a place to lament, that places to lament are allowed. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen, you know, down at George Floyd Square, uh, particularly young men that come into the square uh, full of rage and they just have a space to let it out and everyone gives them space. And then sometimes you'll just see them melt. They'll just kind of get on their knees after that. And they come out changed people. Um, I just feel like we, we've, we've got to real, we've got, we have to, uh, we got to get out our heads and really be in our hearts in this work. And if we lead with our hearts, we realize that, yes, we're going to make mistakes, but yeah, you, you got to take those chances and you got to let those things happen. You are uh, working on a book to be published by Judson Bress. Um, tell me a little bit about your focus and when you expect that to be published. Yeah, I, I think it's on track for March or spring 2022. I'm hopeful. Um, the working title right now is Church in Transit. Um, it was originally I, I designed it as the Bikeable Parish. Uh, and people were like, you know, I think you need to expand a little bit more beyond bicycles, which I thought was good. So I came up with the multimodal parish and everyone just rolled their eyes at that title. So uh, it's really, uh, once I've talked with the writing professor, he kind of gave me some nice hints. I was like, okay, the theme is movement throughout this book. So how can you take away for a church to move into the community? And that's what the real thrust of it is. For me, it's by walking, biking, and taking public transit. Because when you're in those spaces, you're a little bit more vulnerable, you're a little bit more exposed, your guard is down, and you encounter people and situations that you can't encounter when you're either in your office 
or you're in your car or you're you know trying to uh, avoid people at all costs. So um, the thought of doing door to door, knocking door to door, just scares you know this scares me. Um, we have in South Minneapolis, it's what we call do-gooder seasons happening right now. So every evening there's at least three or four do-gooders with, uh, clipboards up and down and everyone has the no solicitation stickers on their doors. Um, no one wants to be associated with, with you know, the, me with a clipboard, but you know, you can, if you move into the community, uh, on a bike or walking or on public transit, you just get to hear people, you get to know their stories. And you can, as a church, I think, respond better to what you think, uh, rather than always responding with what you think people need, you can actually hear what they need and make a better response. But in, the, in a nutshell, it's kind of the book's focus. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Oh, um, well, uh, you know, if you can make it to George Floyd Square, I'll be happy to give you a tour, uh, um, walk you around to some of the places. Uh, but I'm sure that in your city and in your, in your area, there's a George Floyd Square, too, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I would just say that the, if the church could be there as a part of honoring that space and helping it be holy and uh, giving people a place to lament or to grieve or to rejoice or to be re-energized, uh, make that do everything you can to make that happen. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Curtis. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Travis's latest Christian Citizen article is Practicing Resurrection. It can be found at christiancitizen.us. While there, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for a weekly summary of articles we're publishing and links to related stories elsewhere. Thank you. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that's provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print-only publication is now a digital-first, multi-platform media brand. We've added an award-winning weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. Thank you to this week's guest, the Reverend Travis Norville. Our theme music is Eye of the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kage. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.